0: and welcome to our podcast clear as mud where we talk to game developers from all walks of life about their personal and professional journeys i'm your host graham waldrick as always our show is presented by mudstack the only asset management and collaboration tool custom built for game studios and digital artists for more information head over to mudstack.com on today's show we welcome seth hall principal vfx tools and pipeline technical artist at riot games I'm deeming this episode the Thanksgiving Day episode because of the amount of content we have in this show. It just feels like one of those all-time great Thanksgiving Day meals where you eat so much and then go sit on the couch and watch football for like three or four hours, and you are just in a really, really good mood. Seth has worked in VFX on the film and TV side, on Spider-Man 2 and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and on the game side, he's worked on Star Wars The Force Unleashed, the Battlefield franchise, the Dead Space franchise, Dante's Inferno, and was also working on Amy Hennig's canceled Star Wars game before the plug was pulled, and gives us an idea of what it was like working on that one. We talked through all of that and a hell of a lot more in really in-depth detail. Um, I was very lucky to have uh, Joseph Bell, who's uh, one of our product managers here at Mudstack, join me today, Who's I've known for so long. I don't remember a time when Joseph wasn't in my life at this point. Um, Joseph has got an extremely gifted technical mind. He's the ultimate problem solver. So he and Seth really hit it off. And it was really cool to work with him on this episode to interview Seth and bring you a really technical and very beefy episode. But I think you're really going to enjoy it. So enjoy your Thanksgiving Day dinner a few months early, actually many months early. Here it is. Seth, you've had a, pretty, a really amazing career, I would say, looking at all, all the stuff that you've worked on over the years. What made you want to get into this space? Was this always the plan or did you have other plans in life before you decided to get into games?
1: No, it actually wasn't the plan. I didn't really know, like coming out of high school, where I wanted to kind of direct my efforts. And my dad was always kind of a creative person, uh, like loved photography, loves art, loves music. And I kind of always got that creative outlet through him. Growing up. Um and after high school I took a few junior college classes and nothing was really like hitting. I wasn't really really understanding where I wanted to go. And I had always like grew up with computers and like BBSs and things like that. So I was playing with Photoshop a lot. And I'd always been interested in three D in that regard just from some of the games I was playing on the computer and watching films. And um I saw a Bryce 3D course at the junior college and was like, ah, okay, let's just see what that's about. and Try it out. And it was really cool. And I, I really liked it. albeit it was very kind of minimal in terms of like the entry point, but at the end of it all, like I was really excited. And I, I approached the instructor after just sort of like as next steps, like, Hey, you know, this was a cool class. What, you know, what do you think I, where do you think I could go from here? Are, are there other schools or trade schools? Is there other opportunities and other spaces to be able to facilitate this? <laughs> and he looked at me, and he was like, "Yeah, I, I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't really embark on it. Um, it's it's kind of a rough career path, or it can be." And I kind of took that and did my own research, and found a school out in Arizona where I was intending to do 3D animation. It's more of like a tech school, and I ended up in a graphic design course. But at the very end of that, uh, the the classes there um i was able to get like a three month intro to maya it was like maya 1.0 and from that i learned about Noman, which is where i eventually ended up so
2: hopping over to uh Nomen, so what was the what was the transition like for you was it uh like a shell shock experience or did you uh like you felt
1: like you were right in the right spot at the right time when i drove down from northern california where I was from, to L.A. The second we got over the grapevine and got into L.A., I was just like, this is it, I'm I'm home. And then when I saw the school, and back then, like the school's grown quite a bit, it's gotten a lot bigger in terms of uh, the TV studio that they've kind of taken over. But back then, like the catwalks that you go through uh, and to get to classes, it was just very unique and different. Just the whole structure, it was very industrial feeling. It didn't feel like any school I'd ever seen. Uh, or, or had, had been to, um, and I just kind of knew in that moment that like, this is, I think this is it, like, this is the place.
2: Were there any instructors
1: that really helped you out there or, uh, helped guide you through the, through your years there? All of the instructors. Cause the cool thing is, the cool thing was with Nomen was like being in Hollywood. Um, we had access to, it was all the instructors were professionals. They were all coming from like Sony or dream, you know, DreamWorks or DD, Um, and they were teaching the classes. So like we were learning from people coming from work, doing this all day long. And it just had a different feeling. And I like, I picked up on that immediately because like the classes I was taking in Arizona when I first kind of got to dabble with Maya, it felt very like, here's the instruction manual, click this button to do this. Whereas in these classes, you're, you're kind of learning what Maya can do, but you're also learning like how to circumvent. You know, bugs or things like that that you may not otherwise encounter or know how to get around, which was nice. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So more more about like solving the problems than yeah, than understanding just like what what the Nerves uh, tool does. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh, yeah. So uh, moving over into like coming out of school, uh, what was like the first the first thing you ended up working on professionally?
1: Just before graduation, uh, me and my now brother-in-law Jericho Green. Who also was a student at Noman, and another student of uh, friend of ours tyson cross we had all gotten this gig to work for uh this he was like a did like dj visuals like stage visuals for concerts and um we got hired to work on some corn stage visuals which is kind of funny um, but it was cool because like you know in school as that window is closing of like we're about to graduate and then kind of enter the world you know you kind of have that anxiety of like i don't know if i'm gonna get a job i don't know what i'm gonna do and getting that role and working on that stuff which i knew you know was going to be displayed to a lot of people going to these shows it felt very rewarding and it it felt like validating right that like uh you know we hadn't even finished school yet and we were working um so that was my that was like my entry point just exiting school <laughs> okay yeah
2: that's that's the height of new metal too you're like the early 2000s yeah yeah
1: Yeah. (laughs) totally
2: yeah so all all that stuff is like pre-rendered pre-rendered work right yeah yeah
1: yeah, so basically the the concept was we were creating like I can't remember how many different vignettes we made, but like they were wanting to do these things with the camera where the camera they would have it on the zip line or wire and it would like fly through the crowd and they'd enter the stage and as as the camera would approach the musicians we would transition into like their ear and then you would kind of go through the ear and do this thing or you would go into something else. So like we did one where it was like these it was it was a bunch of loops, right? So it would mm-hmm. be like looping through this thing and then come, the camera would come out the other side. So we we're creating these like real-time kind of pre-rendered transitional elements, but the the guy uh, who who brought us on, he was kind of doing it all live as they were playing with the you know the camera operators and stuff, which is kind of interesting.
0: I was gonna say that's a really cool kind of merging of of different art forms. Did anything was there anything specific that you you learned or implemented there that you kind of took with you later in your career?
1: I wouldn't say there was anything I learned or implemented in that, other than like working under time constraints like real time constraints and working with people that you know we're all kind of bouncing ideas off of one another or you know i'm waiting on uh my friend over here to finish you know what he's modeling so that i can implement it and then build a rig for the camera in Maya and something so we, we can start rendering it like those kind of things that you don't pick up in school uh that's that's a lot of what started to kind of you know come to fruition was just working in that dev environment
0: that's always an underrated part of when you're, I think, getting your foot in the door anywhere initially is, is how to yeah. work with people. As you know, it's a continual learning process. But how many people were working on your side?
1: It was us three. And then there was a, another student at Noman, which is how we got the job. But he wasn't a track student like we were. He was just taking a class that we happened to be in at the time. Uh, and he had personal connections to... I'm trying to remember his name. But he had personal connections to uh, the guy who had the, the gig that who's looking for work or looking for helpers.
2: As you're going through, like you're you're starting out your career, uh, you're still working through that VFX side more on the, uh, uh, more like film end or not necessarily like games yet. Uh, so the next thing I see is like Zoic studios. Could you talk a little bit through that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I finished up, I finished up that, that corn thing and kind of spun for a second, just trying to figure out, okay, well we did that now, now what do we do? I now have some professional work. So I was re-editing my reel, just trying to put something on there so I could try to start pulling off the student work. And I had been in contact with one of my instructors from Nomen, Andrew Orloff. Uh, and he was working for a post house at the time called also called riot. Um, and, uh, they had him and some other folks at that, that post house had left and they formed Zoic. So Zoic was only around for about two months when I came in, but he hit me up and was asking, you know, they needed some, they needed some VFX help. And so I, I came over and the interview process is a little interesting, like they came in and said, you know, like if you can do these six shots, um, you know, we, we'll hire you. But basically, it was like unpaid, and I basically just sat down and got a bunch of shots, and then uh, had to bang them out in like two weeks. It was it was pretty it was pretty hairy, oh, yeah. but it was cool.
2: Got through. Yeah. it. <clears throat> I, I had a similar thing. Whereas like uh, a previous job is. Uh, a vr scene i had to basically optimize something for gear vr like a full full building it's like if you get this to work you're hired i was like okay i'll try it <laughs> try to figure <Nice>. it out <laughs> so yeah yeah experience there Zoe, you were there for quite a while like um as you were there did you like uh grow in your in the roles there or were you primarily just uh, uh doing the same senior art role
1: um so when i came into there i i I came in just to like as a visual effects, as a generalist, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was kind of doing everything. So if I got a shot, I would be tracking the plates. I would be doing any modeling that needed to be done, any texturing, VFX, lighting, rendering, as well as compositing. Um, and that's kind of, and I kind of was doing that while I was at Gnome, and I didn't really pick like a, a track that I was just like, I just want to be a model or a character artist. Like, I kind of was always interested in doing a bunch of stuff. Um, And so when I came over there and was doing that, uh, it was cool. It was a lot of work, but I don't feel like I really ever mastered any of those one parts, but I was able to kind of string that stuff together. It's a crazy environment because like the show has to, has to air on TV. And so sometimes, you know, you might be getting like seven, eight shots They kind of juggle around folks. But you know, that time constraint of like, you have a week, here's the plates. You have one week to get this done. Like it's, it's kind of fight or flight. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, uh, that, that type of thinking, I think that's kind of leads into the technical artist type of thought process where you're hopping around, to a bunch of different things, you know, how everything kind <clears> of <throat> sticks together, but, uh,
1: yeah. 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 Uh, like, so I kind of refer to myself as a lazy artist yeah, because I don't like doing the same things over and over. If I have to, if I have to like click the same thing five times, I'm going to try to figure out how I can make that an automated thing. So, mm-hmm. From that point on, even early into Zoic, I I had worked with an artist that I was like frustrated. I was like, Man, it's like these shots are taking me so long. Like I, I should be able to crank these out faster. And he was like, Oh, why don't you just why don't you just script it? And I was like, What are you talking about? And so he kind of sat down and just showed me a little bit of how he was querying like textures or parameters or just doing stuff with scripting in Maya, and I was just like, Oh my gosh, there's a whole other world to this aspect that's not just this manual input. Oh yeah. So that's kind of what fueled my desire for like improving my own workflow. And if I could improve mine, maybe I could help improve yours. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>
2: yeah. I, I think that's a good segue into, uh, the next, uh, type of thing you did. You, you transitioned over to become an instructor over at Nomen going from student to teacher. What's that, what's that transition like?
1: It was weird. Um, cause I hadn't been working professionally for that long yeah. coming out of it. um, but it felt, it felt natural. Like I, I felt comfortable too, because like Noman, I was pretty comfortable there. I knew all the staff. Um, I didn't feel like I was an outsider. So like it felt good coming in and meeting a bunch of new students. And I also could sort of understand where they're at because I was recently in their place. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it felt good to not only come in and be able to help teach them, but it also felt good as somebody from that space to understand how I could probably teach them, uh, in ways they might pick it up because I literally had just gone through all of that.
0: And were you still looking for other, other jobs while you were teaching or were you kind of like, I'm going to do this for Um, a little bit. I
1: mean, I was still working. I was working at Zoic when I was teaching on site um, at, at Nomen. And um, when, when I left Zoic and went to EA Chicago in 2006, I retained teaching, but then I started doing online teaching Yeah. So I did that for a little while as well after that, but the online teaching and the on-site teaching was kind of, they were two very different experiences in terms of time input. For the, for the
2: online teaching, is it mainly just like video production or were you
1: actually doing classes? Uh, It was, there were classes. Um, So basically the format was uh, each week there would, you would have your syllabus, but each week um, you would uh, record basically your lecture. Uh, It would be basically the same length as a class, and I would kind of cut it down so it would be not just like one giant movie file, but I would try to break it down into subsections so that it was easy to kind of figure out what topic you might need to go back and refer to. Mm -hmm. And then um, typically they would, you would take, you know, the students would watch that, and then they would do their work, and then they would upload their work into the portal, and then you would, you know, take that down and review it. But there was there was a part of it for me you know coming out of Nomen and teaching and going into the online teaching that was lost which when you're hearing critiques of other people's work you sort of you it, it, you learn from that as well right like you pick up things and even though it's not your task but there might be problems or solutions or even things you're not thinking about that you you pick up from those yeah so the the typical thinking was like just do your critique for that student <clears throat> And then give it back to them. But what I ended up doing, because I wanted to try to retain that as much as I could, is I would do all the critiques, and then I would upload everybody's critiques for everybody, so that you know, you know, some folks were like, I had students that were like in Japan, like we were, they were in different time zones, different uh, regions of the world, and but I wanted to make sure all of, everybody kind of had at least a connection to everybody else in the class through their work. Yeah,
2: yeah, that was something at, uh, at and I assume Noman probably did this too, but uh, at SCAD. Uh, we We had something like a uh, end of quarter like reviewer. Everybody mm-hmm. in the department came in and gave critiques for whatever you were working on that quarter um, which is
0: yeah, definitely they, very they had, helpful
1: yeah yeah, they had similar rituals for students there
0: but you you've worked on a number of on VFX for for commercials right yeah
1: I I so when I was at Zoic I was mostly working on episodic. I did transition and work on some pick up some commercial projects while I was in there as well, just bouncing around. It was fun. They weren't really shows I I was into watching, but in terms of like as a creative production, they were amazing, Um, which was like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel and CSI. I worked on Spider-Man 2, a few shots. We did some Cadillac commercials. Over the span of five years, like those are the main ones that really jump out because there's just specific things about them that kind of always stuck with me.
0: What what was, what's that like working on a big, a big film, like a Spider-Man two, how much cross department communication is there in terms of like, are you getting, are you getting notes directly from, from like Sam Raimi, or is it more of like, you're just working with your team and you're, you're, you're kind of being dictated. No,
1: I, none of us were, were getting that level of, uh, of notes. We would maybe get like the production designer would come in or the VFX soup. Um, but some of the shots we were doing, there was a car that was getting launched through a window and the raw plate, you could see the the entire underbody of the car. It had this rig on it from where they used like a hydraulic pump to like launch the car and smash out this window. So we had to like remove the bottom of the car and put a new bottom on top of it to, to hide that. And then, um... All the debris and stuff flying around they wanted to add extra like things in the environment to like play up the chaos like a huge crystal chandelier that had to like shatter and swing around and and break so we were like adding in elements like that that maybe weren't like outwardly noticeable kind of like subtle the subtle effects i guess
0: i love that shot too it's just like yeah the car flies through the window and uh it's like in slow motion and everything because, I mean, that, that's one of those things, too, where it's like you're ca- kind of just, like, adding on to an already, like, planned out shot. You're not, like, creating a digital shot as much as, like, you're adding adding things into something that's already been done.
1: Yeah, in my experience, that was the case. But, like, working on, working on Angel and Buffy, you would get kind of a breakdown of what the episode was about, like a synopsis of the episode, and we would all watch the raw footage with no VFX just sort of as it was shot, just so we could see the timing and the pacing and just sort of what the, how the show was going to unfold. And then in the episodes, we had a lot of creative freedom and license to kind of deliver sort of the vision of sort of what we wanted to kind of convey, right? So like if we were doing something magical, remember we only have like Sometimes a week and a half to do this. So going through the iteration process of like concepting this, you know, these these visions out. Sometimes you just didn't have the time for that. So they, it was really left up to us, just as generalists, to be like, okay, let's start spinning on something and try to get revs out as fast as possible, so they can start, you know, making sure the direction or the palettes or the lighting or color or whatever is is in the right direction.
2: Yeah, and some of those plates can't are, aren't necessarily as clean as possible because the TV production is running on the same timeline as y'all, so. Be running yeah. into some fun things there too,
1: yeah. Or you get things like you know, tracking markers forget to get put into the to the plates, right? So you're having to kind of work around that. There's all sorts of little things that go go into that stuff that you can't account for. Yeah. Any fun uh, manual rotoscoping <laughs> stories that
0: you?
1: Have? Yeah, Before I actually really learned how to properly rotoscope. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I was pulling my my hair out one night working on this shot on angel where this demon is like punches this person and this light column comes out of his chest but it's at night and then as the guy's falling backwards the light column has to follow him but the demon the demon has all these crazy he's wearing like this uh foam suit right so it's super detailed horns all sorts of other stuff but he's like breaking the the light frame so i'm like having to roto all these little horns all these little tiny details and i was like doing it as one giant mask with like hundreds of points. Yeah, And I was like, why is this taking me hours? And then uh, one of my coworkers who was just a compositor was like, look, break it into buckets, like just do the hand, then just do this piece, yeah. then just do, this. and do really small amounts, like like uh, refine the number of points you're having to manage. Yeah, And then that's when I was like, oh Jesus, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a lot better. <laughs> but rotoscoping was, was painful oh, yeah. for sure. Did you ever get burned out doing that stuff? Rotoscoping and tracking were my two kryptonites. Like, I, and unless we used a we used a software at the time called Buju. Buju was a pretty solid uh, camera tracking tool at the time, but what it did not work with is camera zooms. Like, if, if you're shooting on a locked like 50 millimeter lens and that's it, great. But the second somebody zooms it, the tracker would just break. And those are one of the, those are some of the, the nuances and the things you're, you you can't account for. know we can't really say you can't zoom the lens to to the director you just have to kind of figure out how to make it work if they do which those were those were always kind of rough
2: yeah just be happy sam raimi wasn't directing those episodes (laughs) (laughs)
0: lots of snap zooms going on with them
2: yeah Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, just going over to uh, to EA, uh, you had uh, a little stint there. Tell us a little bit about
1: uh, being a visual art director over at a large studio like that. Since I had been there, I, we, we had, I worked on Dante's Inferno, which is when Dead Space 1 was in production. And then after Dante's Inferno, I swapped over to Dead Space 2. Uh, but we were using all of our own tech. Internal, it was proprietary to EA. But a lot of that was like trying to get a vision of the game as a whole and figure out sort of uh what the look and direction was and sort of you know this is we had a good we had a good template because dead space one had come out and that sort of set the tone so we we had a lot of that stuff figured out but we wanted to try to like look at specific aspects of the game and be like what could we do here to level up sort of uh what we did previously how could we improve that Um, so like one area from dead space one to dead space two that made a huge impact was, uh, you have the ability to like slow down time. Right. Uh, with stasis, with stasis and in dead space one, that time, um, shifting didn't really apply to anything else, but the animation, like the characters. And so we started adding characters in dead space two, uh, like there was a character called the puker and he would puke on you but they also like when you dismembered him he would spew out that that puke from his limbs and it wasn't really just like blood and stuff anymore right so they were trying to we were trying to figure out it just looked kind of crazy when you would when you would slow him down but all the vfx were playing full speed and and not matching so i was working with the rendering engineers talking about you know how are we doing the time shifting is this Is this a system that we could send into the VFX so as they're playing back, you could like multiply whatever that value is, that time value is based on that that slowdown value. And so one of the rendering engineers was like, Oh yeah, let me look into that. And a couple days later he came back and was like, Here, check this out. And so when we shot the limb off and then hit that stasis on him, it was like this it was kind of like those those ramp ups and ramp downs where it's like and it slows down, right? But it was so cool to finally see. It just gave so much context to these cause and effects because that that character in particular shot volumes out that the player doesn't see, but they're like damage volumes. So if you slow that character down and those damage volumes don't slow down, it's sending a, gameplay-wise, it's sending a a different message, right? So it it was really cool to see that come together.
2: And uh, did you just work with the, the on the character end, or were you working also in the environments too uh, on that?
1: We were working on everything. Uh, VFX VFX is kind of a shared resource in terms of like in, th- in those games and that in that process. So like we would affect the characters, we would affect the environments, any vehicles, cinematics, IGCs, all of that stuff. We were on the hook for
2: on the lighting side of it were there any like big changes to to how you're lighting things from dead space one to dead space two or
1: because he's all using the same lighting engine we had a full lighting team that was stellar they were they were really solid um but it was all the same stuff but the vfx back then the performance and like the the budgets and stuff like that we couldn't really afford too much pixel lighting on the particles or like using normal maps on the particles so back then a lot of stuff was emissive
0: and talk about like what a vfx director does uh for those that might not know
1: so we were basically just trying to put boards together and outline a plan of sort of like how we could deliver on some of uh the looks we were going for we would also try to figure out like are we understaffed do we have people on the team that are going to excel in some of these kind of heavier larger moments so that you know if we have uh artists on the team that are at a lower level they can kind of Focus on the craft and learning the systems, and work on some of these lighter uh, entry points, allowing us to put uh, the more experienced artists on things that, you know, may be able to deliver a higher quality output. And then there would be times where, like we, you know, junior artists or lower level artists would want to come in and try to do that, do that kind of stuff. And I think it's important to also make sure either people can be mentored into doing that, or given the opportunity, and you sort of like coach them along as they are doing it. Um, but a lot of it was. Just figuring out, like, how do we want to structure the team and how do we want to actually grow it? Uh, How do we want to set the tone for the types of uh, palettes and things like that we're expecting to see in these areas? We wanted to try to, like, dispel any questions so that artists as tasks were coming in, they could kind of get in and use these different references to uh, make smart decisions.
0: And how much do you think, like, teaching and what you learned (laughs) through teaching helped with you know, working with the younger artists on the team.
1: In terms of like guiding them on performance and budgets and sort of what not to do was very helpful. Um, a lot of cases, even when like I started working in games when I came out of film, cause it's a very different thing. You know, I was just like, all right, throw a million particles at it. Great, it's on screen, right? It's gonna bomb the frame rate. And then if I'm using really expensive materials, right? You may not understand some of those things. So a lot of it, a lot of it came into trial and error and also failures. So like letting somebody break something and then having them come and ask, like, why did this break? And then you sort of you don't really give them the answer. You sort of coach them through to the solution of it. Um, I felt like that worked pretty well for us when uh, we were we were trying to kind of plus people up.
0: Did you get your your hands dirty uh, working through stuff or did you try to, you know, like you were saying, just really make sure your team team got the job done?
1: Oh no, I was I was in the I was in there with everybody else just as much. Yeah, we were all we were all sharing kind of the load. It was all you know. The other thing too is at at that level is like you want to also. It took me a little bit of time just to learn to delegate and trust, right? I always want to be like, well, I can do that. Oh, I can do that. I can do that. But it's like you can't do everything, and you have able-bodied people that are or artists that are like really awesome, and they can also do this stuff, and so. Once I kind of stepped into that space, learning to delegate and trust and stuff like that was it took me a little bit of time to to kind of like get over that hurdle.
0: Was there a particular moment where you started to realize I can trust my team more? I wouldn't
1: say there was like a moment. I mean, I I was pretty aware and in tune with like who had strengths where Um, a lot of it just came down to time. Right. Like we we, if we only have X amount of time to finish something, it's just not economical or physical feasible. For, for me to sit here and be like, well, I, I think I can do that. I think I can do that, right? You have to, like, kind of allocate the time constraints and look at that stuff. And sort of, like, once we started doing that and we started um, passing work around and seeing that, you know, things were running just as smooth, it, that's, it, was, it was a very short trip to get over that hurdle of, like, oh, this, this is not a problem. Like, we, we have a solid group around us.
0: Yeah. And how and what about like in terms of handling sort of like cross departmental communication with, um, you know, maybe the art director or, or or lead director or even the engineering team? Uh, right. Like, how are you balancing, you know, getting your hands dirty, managing your team and also, you know, talking with everybody else?
1: Typically, well, when it comes to the engineering, we would there wasn't too many gotchas that would come up in the moment where it would be like oh, crap, we didn't account for this tech we need. Now we got to push this out a month, right? We we usually had a pretty solid idea of what was coming down or sort of where things were going to be falling. So if we did need to make those allocations, we could have those discussions and do those bids and figure that out. Um, in terms of, like, lighting, we, as VFX, like, we sat with the lighters because lighting is also a shared resource. And so we worked very closely together, and we were also kind of around the characters. So the way EA was structured, like, getting up and just talking to people and moving around in terms of like personal just discussions, or if you wanted to go to like, if I wanted to go to the animator and just be like, Hey, I need a bone at the tip of this gun so I can spawn this muzzle flash. He'll be like, Oh cool. He'll just drop it in and do it. Um, there would be some, some hiccups from time to time where you would work on a cinematic and say that cinematic has been approved in, in the game for a month. And then out of nowhere you play the game and, VFX aren't firing, there's added shots, things have changed. And you're now getting bugs because you're like, hey, your VFX are broken. But what happened is that like a change had come down the line where it was like, you know, we need to, this needs to be improved and this is the way we're going to improve it. And that stuff just gets implemented without really the waterfall effect of communicating out sort of the stakeholders that have to be in that. Mm -hmm. So you would run into that stuff sometimes. um, But I think that's kind of the nature of the beast. We tried to be pretty good about being very clear and concise about uh, like post-approval changes and things like that.
0: I know you didn't work on the first one, but I mean, you guys pumped out, you know, three really, really good games, created a new franchise. You know, what was it? First one came out in, in 08, I think.
1: I think it was 08. Yeah. I think it was 08 or 09, but I think it was 08.
0: Yeah. and, And it's like every couple of years you got a new dead space and it was, it was always a really interesting franchise to me. I loved how much more quiet it was. Um, the horror was really good. It definitely felt like a weird cross between, you know, Alien and, and The Thing. And the, all the dismemberment stuff was really cool. How did you guys, you know, looking back on it, how did you guys feel like when the when the series concluded? I know the third one didn't do as well financially, yeah. but in terms of what you guys created, a you know, a new IP, especially during that time when it was, there were so many first-person shooters and third-person shooters where yeah. it was just action, action, action all the time. And you guys kind of made, especially with the first two, these slower, you know, more methodical uh, survival yeah. horror games.
1: So going from, I didn't work on one and like it was a much slower paced game. You really wanted to creep. You didn't really know what you were getting into. And two became a little bit more action focused, Mm -hmm. which I think was a good kind of growth for that. Um, But three, yeah, three, I felt, I feel like we, that one from my perspective as a dev on it, I feel like there was some directional things that we wanted to do um, that could have kind of made that game feel differently that some choices had come down where we had to cut stuff and it, I don't know, it just started to feel as if like, at that point we were just trying to get the game. It was like, just get the game out as fast as possible. Right. Mm-hmm. Like we, we'd already made two just build off of those and get it out. And so some of the decisions we had early, we had made early on had to kind of get shelved and um, we just, I don't know, we had to, we had to sort of work against time to sort of make that delivery.
2: Yeah. And, and working on something where you're dealing with like, uh, network play too.
1: Yeah. There was a, there was a point on dead space that felt that was kind of like a career highlight that felt really good. Um, there was the whole iPoke minigame and that was sort of just an idea from one of the producers, JC in a meeting was like, you know, what if we did this thing? And so they, they kind of marinated on it, <clears throat> weren't really quite sure what we wanted to do, but they just put a small team of like an engineer, me, um, our, uh, UI, uh, director Dino and uh, an environment artist. And we sort of just sat in a room and sort of banged it out in like a, a couple of weeks. But it was cool because we sort of just got put in a silo to just figure it out and just show what we came out with on the other side. But, like in that space where we sort of didn't really have a pu- a clear objective of like, we need to do this task. Now we have to do this VFX. It was more it was it was very natural in terms of like we would do one thing and look at it and be like, okay, now that we, that's there, it's gonna make sense if we do this. So like small details like when the laser is going over the eye, you can see the pupils dilating in and out. Like if they're minor, but it it's cool because it helps give that fantasy sort of as like, there's a realistic aspect to it because the, the, that light's affecting the character in that way.
2: Or like the, was the eye jitter like increasing as you're getting closer to the eye, things like that. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah as you get closer and if, if you move too fast. If you go really slow, your the eyes will stay a little calmer, but if you're like just jamming that needle down, it's, his, his eyes, are, it's gonna be a lot harder to success.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, working, uh, even going over to something like, uh, like Battlefield 4 and, mm-hmm. and Hardline, uh, were you actually working on uh, like cross-console launch or, or uh, like 360 to Xbox One and PS3 to PS4?
1: Yeah, we were. Um, cross-console's always been interesting. Like working on Gen 3 when we were doing like Dante's Inferno where we were just doing PS3 and 360, that felt a little cumbersome just because they're very different ecosystems and you know the the consoles also have the way that the resources are distributed and stuff is different. But then going into Frostbite, where we were working on, on like, Battlefield, um, that engine does a pretty good job of allowing you to set metric, like, skew metrics and for, for various things, right? So, like, we could say on a low-end device, meaning, like, um, a low-end console or something, this is how much memory you're going to get, you know, Set all the textures, you know, textures can't be above this size. So you can do some quality of life things there that the engine will just handle for you. It's not like foolproof. But even in materials, you could tell materials, like, you know, here's a really complex material and you could drop in that like skew branch and it would just be like on 360, this is what you get. On PC high end, you can have everything. And on PC mid end, maybe you only get a little bit of it. And then on the other side, It just terminates to a point. So that output is always the same. But depending on the console, it's going to be different, which was really nice.
2: Yeah, and uh, there's probably some interesting stories on the the Battlefield 4 side. You were dealing with much larger effects happening uh throughout each level i, I remember it called like levolution or something like that that is but, uh, that's what it was called
1: yeah
2: <laughs> yeah but uh, the so were you were you involved in any of
1: those uh specific like events that were happening in those levels so for battlefield hardline we did all of ours or most of ours <clears throat> in battlefield 4 we were we were working with dice kind of helping them and so we'd picked up a few levels um to kind of bring up to speed because they were more just like blocked out or just in the concept phase um, so that was battlefield 4 was kind of our entry point out of EA's our, our viscerals proprietary tech where we were making dead space that's when we kind of got into frostbite um, yeah it was battlefield 4 was was an interesting transition just from coming from those two spaces because frostbite was just such a mature engine
2: yeah going into a different environment. Uh, Must have been like a a big shock for the for the team too. Just you're in, in Dead Space's engine for however many years. Yeah, uh, switching over to work on four.
1: The biggest transitional jump I felt in that was in Visceral's tech, technology. We as a VFX artist, <clears throat> we didn't really have access to make our own materials for our VFX. So like when you made an emitter, it just it had an Uber shader that was just applied to it, and then there was like checkboxes to turn on and off features, right? And so I didn't really have a lot of material <clears throat> experience at that point. I just knew that there were certain things I should and should not turn on if I wanted to make things cheaper. So when we got into Frostbite, where there was also a material that sort of all the, mater- all the VFX used, but you could make your own materials, which you did need to do sometimes. That's where, that's where things really started to click, because I feel like the material is 50% in some cases of the effect. Right. A particle moving around in the world is cool and you might get some nice motions. But in terms of like real time, that sprite sheet is that the visual of the sprite sheet is, 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 you know, kind of what's selling that, that visual. And so how you shade that and how you make your materials uh, plays a big role. So that was a huge learning experience getting in and now having that set of toys to play with.
0: What what else did Frostbite really allow you to do that you didn't think maybe not even think was possible, but just how else did it make your lives easier? And what were what were you guys able to really accomplish, you know, with with Frostbite 3? I remember when Battlefield 4 came out just being like, oh, my God, these these visuals in all respects were just unbelievable at the time.
1: Yeah, it was it was a really wild jump. So a few things were they had implemented tech to play movies. So like you would see those really high quality like Houdini Sims that just you knew wasn't a sim in the game, but it was so well integrated, it just, it didn't matter. Right. It just felt good in the scene. So being able to leverage that in areas where we could was great because then we could do, you know, higher quality set piece events that felt really good. There was also what that, what that engine brought to us, at least as me as a VFX artist was the ability to script. So like not script, like write code, but like in unreal where you have blueprint something like that, right? So they had a a set of tech called, it was called Schematics, was very similar. But basically, I was now able not only to just go in and make my effects, but I could now sequence them and set them up in the level and time them or integrate them how I felt that they needed to to go in and I didn't have to worry. It, It basically allowed the tech artists to peel back from having to do that and focus on other things because we were very interested in, in kind of maintaining that. So we all, we really wanted the ability to maintain as much of like every aspect of our effect from creation to implementation at that point.
0: That's great. That sounds like, yeah, just like a, a dream for a VFX artist.
1: Oh uh, Yeah, it was, it was awesome.
0: For uh, some of the other things you
2: worked on, at, both at, at LucasArts and Visceral. So Star Wars, uh, Graham and I have an unhealthy relationship with it. <laughs> So there's there's some interesting things that uh, at least on the Force Unleashed. So you're you're doing uh,
1: cinematics compositing. Is that? Yeah, yeah. So so on Force Unleashed, they were using uh, an engine called Xeno, which is ILM's kind of like layout tool. Um, and basically, what we were doing was we were authoring everything in the game, at least like some vfx for cinematics rather like we were authoring stuff but we were doing all the animations all the lighting everything was done in engine we would take those fr- we would take that and we would capture it out to frames and then i would take those frames like into after effects or something and then we would comp over the top of them and you know add you know 2d elements we had access to like ilms kind of main database of all of their stock effects footage and all that stuff, like from everything. So like you could pick and choose, you could just go on there and just start searching like, you know, Death Star explosion. And that shot would come up of the actual explosion plate though, not the shot of the thing. It's like, we could start using that stuff in the game, which which was wild. Um, There was was an issue though with the system. There's a few things. One was like, if the frame rate was different, so if they captured at this frame rate, and then the next time they capture it, say the frame rate dips a little bit, the plates were completely off. So we go back into that rotoscoping problem where it's like, I just wrote it, all this stuff. And I was like, oh man, we have to fix this. So to, to kind of alleviate some of that pain, I went back to one of the rendering engineers and was like, is it possible to capture instead of the whole beauty frame, basically allocate elements of the frame to a layer and then render that on like a green background so I could key it out. Uh, or something like that, right? So once we got that and I was able to start kind of layering the, the – comp- actually compositing the shot back together in After Effects, that made things a lot smoother. But there was definitely some growing pains in putting those together.
2: Oh, man. Yeah, that's, uh sounds like an absolute
1: struggle. Deal with know some,
2: some of those really old plates, too, yeah. you're talking about – and Maybe I can affecting like color space and things like that as well.
1: Yeah, and I can relate to the love for Star Wars cuz my dad my dad as a kid when I was I don't know like 2 or 3 like in the late 70s he had somehow acquired a VHS tape of A New Hope. And like I grew up watching that every day for years as a little boy. And so like I had always been captivated by Star Wars, so like getting to work at LucasArts and work on that was sort of like the I don't know, it was I felt like I had finally made it. Like, I was just like, yeah. that's it. This is it.
0: <laughs> what about the culture uh, working at LucasArts? How, how is that? When, when you got there, you <laughs> had all this, you know, Star Wars in your head and just the excitement of being able to, you know, be around ILM and Skywalker Sound and all these, all these people that have made these things that you grew up watching. Uh, how, how does that feel?
1: It was a lot to take in, um, mostly just because like i'd grown up with all these like historic movies and movies that i loved as a kid like sci-fi movies a lot of uh props and stuff that had come out of there are all kind of all over the place on the campus right like you can see slimer in a hallway which is crazy um so like getting to kind of wa- walk around in that that atmosphere was very there was a very like strong creative element that you just felt like you wanted to make stuff um i would say culturally coming from ea chicago It was definitely a different studio. It was definitely a little, you know, people were a little more, it was was a little quieter. Like you could definitely, people were very focused on their work. Um, So a lot of the rituals and culture in that way, it took me a little bit to kind of wrap my brain around. Like anytime you go into a new space, out of a a comfortable space that you're in, you kind of have to adjust and figure out sort of, you know, how people work and, and sort of what the actual shared workspaces are like. Um, but it was, it was kind of nice because you could really focus and, uh, there wasn't a lot of distraction. So it was cool.
0: And it sounded like, I mean, I've talked to a few people that have, have, have worked over there across mean the the different parts, LucasArts, ILM, Skywalker Sound, and they all have, have come back and said, you know, when George Lucas owned the company, it was like, you were inspired to be creative and you could sort of go be creative in ways that maybe other studios wouldn't let you be creative. Did you find that to be the, the case when uh, during your time there?
1: Yeah, kind of like. He kind—it of, was privately owned by him, right? right? So it was kind of his. It was kind of his baby. You didn't. It wasn't corporate. You didn't have shareholders, um, and so like, you know, he would, he would just let games kind of spin for years, which was kind of unheard of to me. But it was cool that people were getting the time to like work through problems and and find uh, those things that resonate, uh, gameplay, art styles, things like that.
0: And, you, and you've bounced around to a number of different different places. Have you dealt with like you know layoffs and and, and things like that? Do you have any personal experiences with that?
1: Yeah. So uh, six months after, so like EA Chicago, the studio was closed, which is why I moved away from Chicago. Being from California, I had I, I had had my fill of the Midwest weather, and I wanted to come back to California. And
0: it's so cold up northern there.
1: Northern, yeah, it's crazy cold. And my family was from Northern California. And so I kind of wanted to move back and be a little closer to them. So I ended up in the Bay area, was at LucasArts, but I was only there for six months. Um, There was kind of a studio reboot after six months and I was part of those layoffs. And it was funny because my buddy, Matt Burdett, who he works at Riot with me. um, We didn't know each other at the time, but the day I got laid off. Which was a Friday. My desk got cleared out, and he started at Lucas Arts from SCAD as an intern, and it was sitting in my desk. <laughs> and there, that we kind of like drew that connection later in life as we became friends. But it, it was kind of a, I don't know, funny scenario to be in
2: with uh, something like that transitioning out pretty abruptly uh, and, and moving over. I, I, that was when you moved from uh, Lucas Arts to Visceral. At that point, right? Um, yeah. 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 So uh yeah you had uh, a pretty pretty long stint at visceral uh like with uh what's what's it like being there for almost uh almost 10 years
1: it was really cool when i got there because i still felt like i had only been at ea chicago for a year and a half and i was only at lucasarts for six months and at lucasarts i wasn't really in the engine making stuff i was doing the comp right and at ea chicago i was doing some real-time stuff but like not enough to really have a big picture so when i got to When I got to, uh, it was Ears at the time, EA Redwood Shores, I was working on Dante's Inferno. I came in as a junior just because I didn't have, even though I had industry experience, I didn't have a lot of game experience. So when I came into that, I was just like heads down, I'm going to figure this out and kind of grind it out. And then I was able to transition from Dante's Inferno into Dead Space 2 as a senior. But it was cool going from those projects uh, because they were so different. And work, getting to like work with new people that were already on that team, and new people that come on the team, right? Lots of new people to learn from. Um, I always had lots of questions. Um, and then going from Dead Space 2 to Dead Space 3. So Dead Space 2 was interesting because there was a little bit of a, a hiccup in the team um, when we came on, uh, some of the team had shrunk pretty drastically in a in a kind of a very short period of time, um, by like half, and it was a, it was a little scary uh, going into that. We weren't sure what was going to happen. or like, you know, if the game was going to be able to get made if we had the head count, and so morale kind of dropped. Um, but. EA, the, the leadership of the team, you know, stepped in and was just like, okay, what can we do to like, you know, build up some culture and build up some new rituals and and sort of build up morale. And, you know, we started doing like team events going out, or we started doing like weekly happy hours just to kind of like step away from the desk and chat with one another and talk or, you know, do whatever. But just, we tried to not make it like so grindy and just like, okay, now, you know, it's a smaller team. Now we got extra work to do. They wanted to try to like, make sure that we were all sort of taken care of and healthy and uh, and that we were still excited about what we were doing. And in that process, you know, we started to grow the team back. All of a sudden it was back to the same size. It was, and then it was like, uh, everybody was stoked because we had kind of gone through all those those processes to kind of uh, lift everybody's spirits. And the game came out. It was, it was, it was awesome. It was probably one of my career highlights in terms of working on a team and going through those, those, those times was kind of rugged. Um, I going through battlefield, like kind of talked about that a little bit with like frostbite and getting into there. But, um, after battlefield hardline, we started up ragtag, which was the kind of open world, not open world, but like the, the linear story, uh, star Wars game that Amy Hennig was, um, heading up and I got onto that right after Hardline shipped pretty early. And it it was cool because it was like, that was kind of the first game I had been on from like the start, like we're figuring it out. We're, we're actually in meetings talking about like story arcs and things like that, right? Going through the concept art phases. Um, but it was cool to sort of like see what all these moments were and sort of get, in the, get a vision of like what sort of VFX and uh, other type of of uh events were going to be in this game it was it was really cool
0: i was upset that, I got, that got canceled just because i'm such a well as we all know big star wars fan but also a huge uncharted fan and big fan of, of yeah, amy hennig same. so i was like oh my god she's making a star wars game like i'll be there before it's done like I'll, I'll wait in line now
1: that's exactly how i kind of attributed it i was just like i love star wars i'm ready to give it a second chance amy hennig is coming from naughty dog like to do this unreal kind of thematic like it was it was hitting all the right boxes for me
0: can you talk at all about how far that game got along in development or is that uh we can't go in, into those details
1: yeah i can go into a little bit of it um we had a prototype level that was basically like a um imperial sort of outpost on Tatooine, and or was it i think it was Tatooine, and um we kind of were using this as sort of our our kind of gameplay gym and look gym sort of like what level of, of interactability do we want the player to have in the world? Like, can we climb all the surfaces? Can you interact with the droids that are in there? Um, are there certain gameplay things like zip lining? Not saying it had zip lining, but like stuff like that. We were trying to just figure out, like, how do we want to traverse the world and do that? So we had a, it was, it was kind of set up as like a little gym, but it was an art gym. <clears throat> so we had that spun up for a while and we were kind of working through various things there, figuring out how destruction worked, Uh, for certain things. But a lot of it was really about the characters and gameplay and what felt good to you to be able to move around stealthy to avoid the uh, stormtroopers. And then then from that, we started building sort of like our vertical slice demo that would be like really showing the gameplay, showing some kind of high energy moments, showing sort of like the look and tone of, of stuff. And we got through that, and it was pretty cool. Um, But that's sort of where things with Visceral uh, had got spun down. And so naturally the game kind of got spun down with it. And I know, last I heard, and I don't know where it went, but last I heard there was a studio in Montreal that was not necessarily picking it up, but I thought... There was some development that was going to continue forward but i don't i don't know anything about that or if that actually was the case
0: Mm -hmm. and and kind of iteratively when you're working through those those prototype levels like and you're thinking about the characters and gameplay but from the the vfx side like what what things were you guys trying out um while that was being worked on
1: so yeah so there was something very cool that the guys at dice did with uh battlefront um, in terms of their sparks, right? Because like sparks in Star Wars are everywhere and they're very specific. Um, but they were doing these things with the particles on the GPU and at the time Frostbite didn't really have GPU particles. <clears throat> so they started developing this tech and they had built a system where they could just take a you know, combined mesh like just think about like a, 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 a mesh of a quad but there's like a thousand quads just stacked on top of each other, right? It's just a single object and they're all different colors, but they could basically use those color IDs, and they had written some, some shaders that would then you know tie into the particle system to translate those quads. So doing it on the GPU was significantly cheaper, especially when you've got lots of them going on, especially if you want to have like hundreds of thousands of, of uh, sparks. It could handle all that. So we had taken note of what they were doing there and started trying to figure out ways we could implement that stuff. <clears throat> and so, like, we built some tools um, that would allow us to kind of sculpt some of these explosive kind of shapes and noise patterns so we could get different outputs of the sparks so it wasn't just the same burst. Another thing we were kind of digging into is like the quality of our explosions because there's a lot of explosions in Star Wars, right? We didn't want to just keep simming these nice, like nice high detailed maps and, uh, compo- and like adding different particle layers to like make it look fiery or stuff. <clears throat> so me and my buddy Keith Garrett who was kind of working with us at the time, and my other coworker, my buddy, Adad Morales, we started thinking about, you know, if if we were doing this in film, how would we approach an explosion? How would we want to comp an explosion? And so we started identifying the different features of like what an explosive texture might be. So you'd have like an alpha channel, you'd have smoke, you could have like some heat, like fire maybe some light scattering and like an AO pass, if you if we were to generate like an AO map of the, the vo, like the volumetric as like cavities and stuff. And we started breaking down those individual elements and <clears throat> I started building this material where I was literally just comp- compositing everything back together and then spitting it back out. And it was fairly cheap, but what was cool about it was now we could have an explosion where if we didn't want the fire, we just turn the fire off. And now you just have an explosive map or, if you wanted to make the fire blue or purple or something, you could color correct it. Um, or
2: affect the density of the smoke, you could affect the air cavity maps on it. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, you have controls for all those kind of decays, things like that. <clears throat> yeah. It was really cool. There's actually a pretty interesting real time VFX thread that talks about a lot of the lighting and of particles and stuff like that. It's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. But that was really fun to work on, especially because, like, you're talking about you had all this control of the explosions and then they could be different depending on what
1: you need them for at that point. Yeah, and it made them very recyclable, right? right. So you could you could kind of turn things on and off. DICE did something a little different where they were using more of this like nomen lighting system where they would render an explosive, like a smoke texture and they would have two of them. But each map would be like your left up forward lighting and then the other map would be like your right down back lighting or some configuration like that. And they would then sample the sun direction, and then figure out where in the map that would be. So you could get vertex lit particles that looked pixel lit, which gotcha, is very gotcha. cheap. Which is pretty cheap. Yeah. You're paying for the extra texture, but you're not yeah. really. Yeah. The and they're
2: just ones. lurping between it based off your your position to sun direction. And okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So going from some fun, uh, like more more high fidelity types of things like that, going down to uh, a mobile uh, mobile platforms. How was that experience? You're you're dealing with much smaller, uh, much smaller budgets, uh, but still trying to get some level of fidelity out of it. Um, with going over to uh, Command and Conquer Rivals.
1: Yeah, mobiles mobiles a beast. Um, There's definitely like coming out of doing high-end AAA-type stuff where you want to pay attention to the budgets, but you don't have to be that kind of, you know, tighten your belts that much. It was nice, though, because I kind of was looking for a change. I just wanted to do something that was a little different, and so it was a nice segue into that space. Um, And also, the game was pretty far along. The tools were kind of already set, so I didn't really have to worry about it. It was just more about getting it figured out. But, um, yeah, you're... Your memory budgets, your your pixel instruction counts really come into play. Um, knowing your min and max specs of phones is going to be a huge indicator of really what you can do or what you can get away with. Um, so there, it, there was a lot of like relearning, sort of like how what I was doing and what talking about with like mentoring people about like if you break something or you know the you're out of memory, like what can you do to fix it? There was a lot of that rediscovery through mobile for me, which was which was good.
2: Were there any processes that you took from mobile that you ended up bringing back over into into high fidelity?
1: Or less is more.
2: Less is more. Yeah.
1: Less is more. It's like if you can do more with less, it's going to be better for everyone. It's going to be better for you. And in a lot of times, I think some some effects get made in excess, and um, it's not to say that they're bad. A lot of times, they're amazing, but. I found over the years that you can really make some incredible stuff with just a bare amount of things. That's kind of how Legends of Runeterra was working, and it was kind of mind blowing to sort of see their process.
0: And yeah, on that on that note, with Legends of Runeterra, um, can, you, can you walk us a little bit through the, like the development of, of that game, and also particularly working, you know, it's a League of Legends game too, right? It's affiliated with League of Legends. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's set in the league. Yeah, it's set in the league universe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a card game, so when i came on to legends of rutera um, i was coming in to help with vfx and i was just kind of like all right let's do it and then when i got in and looked at they were, they were using they're using unity um, but when i got in and started evaluating the systems and, and sort of looking at how they were building their effects i was like what is happening like how cuz the the fidelity of them was very high But I I was thinking they were just going ham on, like, particles and materials. And um, being a mobile mobile forward game, this comes into play of, like, you got to do less with more. And they started really evaluating, like, how can we make really awesome stuff without particle systems or too many particle systems? Uh, Because, like, we were even getting down to the point where it was, like, if you had more than X amount of particle shuriken systems in the effect, just by having those was adding to your, to your, uh, metrics, your, your memory. Right. And so it sort of just started becoming like you only really use those if you need them. And when I started evaluating the tools as an artist and figuring out how it was going to be effective, uh, like for all intents and purposes, like it's like motion graphics, they're literally taking different mesh quads, mesh shapes, different UV layouts and they're just creatively not to like min- diminish like the technique because it's it's actually really brilliant but like they're really using smart UV layouts and nice materials to translate textures or flip books and then using just raw hand animation like of motion graphics of moving things around to kind of really help inform those the motions and I don't know. It was like another one of those things where I step in thinking I'm going to just pick up the VFX tools, and it was like retraining my brain in this new space to make VFX in a whole kind of different ecosystem.
2: Yeah, and uh, it, it, yeah, with stuff like that, it's it's almost like going back to film, right? You're you're working in you're working almost like a stat 2D type of, type yeah. of format. Uh, yeah. Much more so than just just working in 3D. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. There was there was a moment on lore. Or Legends of Ruterra, where um, like the the level ups were becoming bigger, more bombastic. Like each time we did one, it was like, okay, how are we gonna go bigger with it? And they were all done in editor. So like we were streaming in the texture, streaming in the effects, streaming in all the animation, right? There was a lot of overhead to that. And it was fine for those first few packs that we were that we had kind of been working on. But uh, one of the engineers had been crunching some numbers and was just like, not sure how scalable this is to like continue pushing these out at this pace, just from a you know size of game or just downloading the device type, you know, looking at those scenarios, um, and so discussions started happening about like, okay, well we know we want to have these level ups, but like how can we maintain the look of these and continue making them, and continue making them better and bigger. Um, which led into some pretty fun explorations and pipeline work that kind of came down.
2: Yeah, and and that kind of begins like your your transition to going into tech art, right? So, moving from from VFX over into tech art, you're starting to take the take the problems that you've been solving uh, for yourself and helping out others uh, with with your work. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I so like at that moment, I was still a VFX artist. Uh, but I had been working with their lead tech artist, Eric Idukas, and he, you know, I was just like, hey, I can fix this, or hey, I think I can do that, or okay, can I work on this? If I'd finished my VFX work, or I think I could finish both of those, I would just take them on, and he was always trusting, and be like, yeah, sure, yeah, I trust you, go do it, go do it, right? And it was cool because I hadn't really, I hadn't really felt that in my career at different studios. A lot of times it was like, you're a VFX artist kind of like don't step too far outside of that, right? You can kind of do some stuff, but don't go into somebody else's domain. So for him to allow me to do that, it felt really refreshing. Um, and I, I don't know, I would kind of been like questioning sort of like after this many years of doing this, like am I still super engaged with doing VFX? Do I want to do something new? I've been playing in tech art and making tools. So in this discussion of building this, this pipeline for creating these new level ups came up i was i was like yes i want to work on that so me and um one of the tech artists on the team nick we um we kind of started mapping out sort of like what this world looks like like how do we want to build this uh and so he kind of started getting into the tech side of it in terms of um let's get a new let's get the latest version of unity in since this is going to be its own separate beast and then let's start figuring out sort of how we want to structure the cameras and start getting that kind of stuff set up, because in this space now that we're not in, we're not tied to the main game, we can kind of do whatever we wanted. You could throw whatever animations, at whatever um, vertex count, whatever texture sizes we want, because in the end, going back to Star Wars: Force Unleashed, we were just baking everything to frames. So, so while he was kind of hammering on those ins and outs, I had started getting into. Uh, figuring out, I started doing like just some, taking some models and doing some turntables, getting frames out. And then I started looking into like, okay, well now we have frames, but as an artist, do I really want somebody to have to go into After Effects every time? People composited their own stuff, but like we ended up using Bink. And then it's like, do I want people to have to like, click on these things to go do this stuff? We were trying to figure out how can we make it as fluid and economical as an artist to work on their stuff in Unity render out the frames, do whatever their composite, if like, say their comp is done and they're like, oh, I just need to update this thing. They could just re-render it, kick it over. So we built a lot of tools that would facilitate like knowing what frames were where, knowing what formats things needed to be in. We had already mathematically figured out the correct um, compression parameters for Bink to give us the exact File limit that we were allowed so that there wasn't any issues there. So we started really making a lot of tools on the back end that just made it easy for people to translate and manage their renders back and forth with kind of like little overhead, which is really cool.
0: Are you working with uh, the rest of the team uh, on the art side to try and make sure that, you know, that's going smoothly? You're making the things that will will help them or Are you guys kind of doing your own thing?
1: No, I mean, we were working with the art team. We had, um, there was an animator we were working with who's amazing named Sean Coleman. And uh, he was kind of providing a lot of the animations for us, especially as like tests too. And, um, and so as we were getting those animations in, <clears throat> We were kind of using him as kind of a customer to sort of get in the system and like, hey, try rendering this out. Does this feel good to you? Do you feel like this should work this way? Does this is, is this giving you the output you want? Kind of trying to get that feedback. I mean, as coming from my background as an artist, <clears throat> I had a pretty good idea, especially from film and doing compositing and working with lots of frame numbers, like image sequences. I had a few, I had a pretty good understanding of how I would like to have worked in it, so I at least had a pretty Good foundation there but then it was a lot of good user feedback that kind of really helped kind of hone the system
0: thinking about sort of where VFX are now where they're headed what are what are your thoughts on that be it film film or games
1: with games I still think sprites are here to stay I don't think they're gonna be going anywhere however I do love like all this GPU stuff that's happening right now. I mean, like GPU particles in general have always just been crazy good and cool. There's also Embergen, which is doing these insane, very high detailed fluid simulations that normally, like even back at Zoic, like you would fire those off and you would wait hours just to get a few frames. And then even rendering it is crazy, right? It's so like having that now where it's simulating it, but it's also rendering it super high is, is nuts. <clears throat> And being able to use those kinds of things, like if you want to make a, a high-quality map in EmberGen, like creating that sim and then kicking it out to a flipbook, is like sec. It, it, it pales in comparison to the original process of like going to Houdini, caching a sim, rendering it. Like even with with like film, <clears throat> um, going into like a lot of GPU rendering with like Octane and Redshift, um, I think that also has really changed the game a lot. Because we're talking about things that originally were taking days to render and probably sometimes still do take days depending on how big it is but like when i was in school just using Maya software renderer it's crazy like if i had these tools back then it would have been a completely different experience
0: what about with things like like water and and other liquid effects i mean that's always been something that i feel like you know 10 15 years ago in games didn't look so great now it's becoming more and more realistic um in terms of in terms of how those things look
1: yeah those have always been pretty tricky at least in terms of like selling that volumetric and also like making things feel wet like if a character traverses through it like those interactions i know there's a a pretty insane plugin for unreal and i can't think of the name of it that just does these it does like full rivers and like white water and like flowing i don't i don't know what the cost of that stuff is but like the fact that these are becoming available and like fluid ninja and stuff like that Unreal's putting its real-time fluid simulation stuff in. <clears throat> I think those types of effects are going to become a lot easier. And if you can't use those tools raw as they are, I have a feeling there's going to be entry points that allow you to generate maps and textures to at least uh, facilitate using the output that you're getting from them.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I, it is it is crazy how much better it's getting. And um, the only other thing I, I have is, is sort of an interesting thought about where film is in terms of how the VFX artists are being utilized. Um, and sometimes I would say abused in a certain way in terms of how much they're, they're working and how little time they have to turn around things. Um, and kind of like how isolated they are in the sense that like, you know, for a lot of these bigger productions, you know, they're having to create shots, Um, without really any input from the directors or the directors don't really know how to work with special effects and sort of up to the VFX team and they don't have enough time to do it. And when they turn around, it's not as good as it could possibly be. You have any thoughts on, on the industry in that respect?
1: That's kind of why I got out of film. Yeah. Like for all intents and purposes, that's literally why I got out of it. I just, I mean, I was, I was working more in like television, but still like the turnaround, the burn rate and turnaround of like getting episodics and commercials out like out coming out of school, it was, I didn't care. I was just like, I'm hungry. I want to work. But after years and years of doing it, it's just like you, it's hard to stay focused. You also like, when you're crunching that hard for days on end or months on end, like you start making, I personally was like making mistakes in my work, which was causing me to have to stay later to fix those mistakes just because I'm kind of tired. I'm making poor decisions in those moments uh, in terms of how I'm, I'm doing stuff. So I, I think like burning people out it if it's something that like something somebody's into doing then more power to you but i don't i don't love that you know the effects industry it's sort of just like this it's got to be on the screen it's got to be done <clears throat> sort of yeah. like these life and death moments right like there's somebody on operating table i've always felt it that way at least when i was working like a lot of a lot of like overtime hours and stuff
0: yeah i mean i think there's still really incredible work being done but it's just i know a lot of people that work in that in that industry on the film side and it's just like man i i I feel for them though i just feel like yeah there's the burnout there's people that like turn their backs on it because they don't want to do it anymore and um it just feels like it used to be such a thing where visual effects really wowed us you know when back in the day when it was really like they had time to to make things and they they worked with the directors and it was like this really big deal blending of practical and and digital even when it got more digital there's still that feeling of like man this is like all this work is so great and now it's gotten to the point where it's just it just feels so rushed and these guys and and girls are just being run into the ground and I just feel like I mean what can be done to combat that at this point it feels like this sort of runaway freight train that's gone off the rails at this point
1: it has gotten pretty crazy there's a few there's a few things that I've seen or that have, like, you know, shows that have come out that are exhibiting newer technologies that hopefully can kind of skirt some of these things or at least alleviate some of these struggles. Like Mandalorian, using the light stages, right? right to make With the, the
0: volume you know, to, stuff, yeah. <clears throat>
1: yeah, using and they're, like, using real-time, like, Unreal to build these environments. And they're basically just putting the actors in these scenes. So you're naturally picking up this lighting of the worlds. You're getting natural reflections. You know, those kind of things also reduce the types of VFX stuff that artists may have to pick up, right. is like, you know, if you're shooting on a green screen and they're supposed to be out in this world, well, now you have to put all those reflections on all these glass windows and things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And in some of these, some of these cases, you know, it alleviates some of that stuff and it's really cool. But, but yeah, it's film and television is a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. Um, I would love to see some changes, but it's, It's hard to say, you know what I mean, where that where that goes.
0: It's I just don't think it can continue. I don't think it's a sustainable thing. And it kind of makes me worried about the future of of the industry.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, even when we were in school, right, like Mm -hmm. some of our teachers, a lot of us students being like, oh, man, what am I going to do when I get out? You know, there would be a little bit of doom and gloom from teachers in the industry talking about sort of their perspectives and in, in the craft and sort of where they were going and their experiences on what they're working on, you know, some of that would dispel down into the class and kind of give students anxiety. Um, it never ended up being that way, but like all my friends, everybody that I know kind of like was fine and got work and is, has been successful, but there is that kind of question of like, yeah, right. What, what is going to happen? But I yeah. do know what you're talking about. Like it can, it can't sustain for too long. So yeah. Yeah.
0: um on the brighter side of things uh sort of wrap us up here any any sort of pr- uh, advice for prospective vfx artists who are uh trying to get their foot in the door uh trying to make a good impression build a good portfolio um work on things on their own uh to make themselves more marketable
1: yeah um depending on the space you're trying to get into um lots of cool stuff you can do that gets you kind of out of like the student art space not that that's a bad thing because there's a lot of students that do incredible work <clears throat> but a lot of times when people are looking at reels you know they want to see things that could be uh, contextual right like if you're going to go work at a tv show maybe go outside and try like you know using your phone or using a camera and just shooting some stuff outside like you know walking down the street and say you want to track that and blow up the street or have something come up out of the road, like that practicality of working in that kind of context is going to have a lot of weight. I also find online communities uh, in terms of VFX to be very powerful. Real-time VFX is amazing. The Embergen Discord has a lot of uh, great people in its community, industry folks. Uh, Techart.org is awesome. There's a handful of them out there, and these are awesome communities where people, you know, coming in that are venturing and may not have an idea or they're not sure about it, can ask these questions and actually talk to folks that are kind of in it, which is cool.
0: Oh, cool. Well, Seth, thanks for hanging out with us, man. This was a lot of fun uh, going through your career, your experiences, um, and everything in between. Really, really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. This was, uh, it was really cool. Thank you.
0: All right, that's going to wrap up this week's show. We want to thank Seth again for being our guest. Little known clear as mud fact, this uh, intro theme and outro theme is composed by Joseph. So shout out to Joseph for composing a really fun theme for us. And Joseph, thanks again for being my co-host this week. To find out more about Mudstack, head over to mudstack.com where you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and join our community on Discord. And of course, we want to thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Clear as Mud.